I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, producer Jonah here, and welcome to Principle of Charity. This discussion has a great energy. I think Emil is fairly brave with the questions he asks, and both our guests are impressively good sports. Of course, as a reminder, this is part one of the conversation. In part two next week, Lloyd will take over and ask more tough questions in his signature flavor of psychological-oriented inquiry. And as always, if we can trouble you for a review, it's a great help. Here is Christianity versus Islam. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogman, and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. In every episode, we introduce a Principle of Charity personal challenge. Today, our challenge centers around cognitive bias. Cognitive bias is an error in thinking that leads you to misinterpret information from the world around you and affects the rationality and accuracy of decisions and judgments. Bias can make you lean in favor of or against a person, group, idea, or thing. But we would not have bias if there was no benefit. Cognitive bias is often a result of our brain's attempt to simplify information processing. We receive roughly 11 million bits of information per second but we can only process about 40 bits of information per second. And therefore, we rely on mental shortcuts called heuristics to help make sense of the world with relative speed. Simply put, our biases drive efficiency and quicker decision-making. But while biases can be beneficial, for example, being biased towards fitness, they are often dangerous because they can take the form of stereotyping and prejudice. What's even more dangerous is our unconscious biases since we don't know we are being prejudicial. The personal challenge this week is, can you start to make deliberate attempts to being more mindful about your biases so you can keep a more careful watch over them? Now, Emil, with respect to our topic for today, what is it? Thank you, Lloyd. Well, our topic today is Christianity versus Islam, which offers the best path to salvation. So Christianity and Islam are the two biggest religions on the globe. They account for just over half the world's population combined. Most of us know about the religion we belong to, if any. And we too often learn about other religions from the actions of extreme fundamentalists mediated by the news and by politics. What we want to do in this episode is to go back to basics and to find out what each of these two great religions actually believe. What are the essential building blocks of their theology? What do you need to believe is true? What is God? What's a soul? What happens after death? And what exactly is the, is the promise of the religion, whether it's salvation or eternal life, and how do you achieve it? In this episode, we'll explore all of that and more, such as morality, free will and predestination, original sin and submission, the Holy Trinity, 
and one God. We'll also look at where the religions overlap and the areas of stark difference. As we know, the stakes are incredibly high when it comes to theology. Countless wars have been fought in the name of Christianity and Islam, both between these religions and between different sects within religions. Both see their scripture as God's word, as divine, with truth a product of revelation. And whilst there are considerable overlaps, which we'll explore in this episode, there are also irreconcilable differences. Differences, I should stress, not in mere preferences and values, but in the claim to the absolute truth of the nature of the universe, our place in it, the laws of how we live, our path to salvation, and our purpose in life. In this episode, we're not going to spend time dissecting the different strands of the religions, but rather focus on the big-ticket beliefs of both Christianity and Islam. That said, our Christian expert uh, today is Catholic, and so we're going to focus in on Catholicism. There's something about the intricacy of Catholic theology I find particularly captivating. And finally, it's worth positioning myself within all of this. I'm a I'm a Jewish atheist, which may sound like a contradiction, but that's the subject for a, for a different podcast. I don't believe in any divine being, but see the experience of transcendence, of spirituality, of a pure egoless consciousness as something profound. I, I went to an Anglican high school and so have enjoyed many more hours of Christian hymns than Jewish prayers. And my knowledge of Islam is, I should say, embarrassingly basic. But I do find theology more and more fascinating as I get older, as religions are the great languages and practices of spirituality. But I find it impossible to take that leap of faith necessary to accept the basic premise of any of the monotheistic religions, whereby they lay sole claim to God's revealed truth. So Lloyd, I fear we've taken on a massive topic here, Christianity versus Islam, which offers the best path to salvation? Who do we have to help us through it? Emil, our two guests today are Professor Muhammad Abdallah and Professor Robin Turner. Let me tell you first about Muhammad. Muhammad has worked in the field of Islamic studies for over 25 years and played a leading role in establishing Islamic studies across a few Australian universities. In 2020, he was appointed a member of the Order of Australia, the highest recognition for outstanding achievement and service for his significant service to education in the field of Islamic studies. He has also established and led the Griffith University Islamic Research Unit and currently is the founding director of the Center for Islamic Thought and Education. In addition to being a member of the Order of Australia, Muhammad has attained numerous civic awards, including the Community Leadership Award, the Islamic Council of Queensland Community Service Award, and the Ambassador for Peace Award. He's the author and co-author of numerous books, and some of his more recent books include Islamic Schooling in the West, Pathways to Renewal, Islam and the Australian News Media, and Islamic Science, The Myth of the Decline Theory. Our other guest, Emil, is Professor Robin Horner. Robin is a teaching and research academic within the School of Theology and a member of the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University. From 2010 to 2015, she held the position of Associate Dean of the Faculty of Theology and Philosophy. And prior to entering academia, Robin was a teacher in Catholic primary and secondary schools and a liturgical musician and composer. Robin is the author of numerous publications and books, and her most recent book is The Experience of God, The Event of Revelation. Emil, let's bring on the guests. (music) 
welcome, Mohammed and Robin. Thank you both so much for joining us on this episode. Robin, I'm going to start with you. I'd love it if you just gave us a brief outline, if it's possible, of Christian theology, um, Catholicism in particular. What are the essential beliefs that make up Christianity? And we'll go into many of them deeper throughout the podcast. So keep, keep to the core beliefs, if you would, for the moment. Okay, summary in a snapshot. Yes. <laughs> with with Christianity, the core beliefs, it's always helpful to go to the early creeds and the creeds that are typically said in church of a Sunday. Uh, one would be the Apostles' Creed and the other would be the Nicene Creed and, and they contain the, the real guts of it, what's essential. So belief that God has somehow expressed God's self in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ tells us who God is and enables us to restore relationship with God and with one another. Well, I'm going to say by dying on the cross, but for most people that doesn't mean a lot. Really, how we can think about that is by showing us that no matter what, the worst that we can do is not the worst for God, that God actually loves us in spite of everything that we might do. So we can actually let go of our preoccupation with with trying to be worthy all the time. That would be kind of the nub of Christianity. And 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 when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, I mean that is of essence. That's you, you've taken a metaphorical interpretation of that in the way you described it then. But what actually, what does it mean for, that Jesus died for our sins? How can you die for someone's sins? But that's a really good question, particularly in the contemporary context, because a lot of a lot of people wouldn't kind of think about needing to be saved from something. And so hence, you know, dying dying for sins seems a really weird kind of concept. In fact, while perhaps it did sound a bit metaphorical, the church teaches that there's something fundamental about Christ dying for our sins, certainly, but the way that that salvation happens has been described in lots of different theological ways. So in the early church, Paul talks about it in terms of sacrifice, for example, makes a sacrifice on our behalf. But as you work through history, particularly when you get to the medieval times, you have explanations that are based on, say, a worldview that's within the feudal system. Mm. So substitution, penal substitution, that's that's the way this is understood in the Reformation. There's a whole lot of different ways of understanding the how of how that happens. In contemporary times, that theory that I just uh, that I just gave you about the dying enables us to believe that that God actually loves us no matter the worst that we can do, comes out of um, a Benedictine monk called Sebastian Moore. And he uses a lot of psychology around what people need in order to to be saved and in being able to, to accept the love that God has for us that's actually a way of enabling us to be set free and to to love others in the way that we should. But the the, the essential issue that Christianity is setting up is one of salvation, isn't it? That it's a it's a it's a route to salvation. What are we being saved from? You know, and what does one need to do to be saved? Does one one need to believe in that Jesus died for? I mean, what 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 are the essential building blocks of salvation? Okay, well, belief is certainly belief in Jesus Christ as. Hmm. Showing us who God is is essential. As the Son of God? As the Son of God. And again, I think a way of explaining that in a way that makes sense, you know, when we talk about Son of God, 
what we mean is Jesus reveals the fullness of who God is. Hmm. And in showing us who God is, uh, Jesus shows us that God is not a, a vengeful or a um, an overlording kind of God, that God is actually a loving God. Hmm. And salvation is necessary well, again, if you kind of come out of that psychological perspective, that's one way of understanding salvation. Could we start with a sort of more basic theological foundation? Okay, well, it's all theological, but the basic thing is we need to know who God is. We need to have relationship with God in order to be ourselves, fully ourselves, and, and in being fully ourselves, in being happy. For a lot of the time, if, if we go through life ignorant of who God is, we are also ignorant of, of who we are and, and how we should live. And the how we should live is seeing God in the face of the other person, is realising that, that we love God through loving the other. Hmm. And until we can kind of take that on and take the reality of, of our, ourselves being loved by God on, it's very difficult for us to really love the other. And what about the Holy Spirit? What, what is the Holy Spirit and the Trinity within Christianity? Gee. You're really getting to the hard questions first. Well, this is what, yeah, we want to we want to get into the the meat and potatoes here, if you will, and then. Okay, so let's let's do some sort of theology one hundred and one. Yes. So, yes. Trinitarian theology says that God expresses God's self in God's Word, which is in the person of Jesus Christ, and in the expression of that Word, and in the the response that the Word makes to the Father. The Holy Spirit is the love that passes between them. So it's the sort of bridge between the divine and the human, in a sense? It's the bridge between God the Father and God the Son. It expresses right. the love of God the Father and the Son and enables in, in all of creation the Spirit actually vivifies, if you like. The Spirit expresses God in the whole of creation. These are complex theological concepts and we'll, we'll sort Sorry of get about that. a few of them. No, but this is because we want to get into some of these complexities. But, Muhammad, let's move to you now, you know, really the same question. What, what are the essential beliefs of, of Islam and, and how, how does it work as a sort of as a theological hmm. practice? Well, first, thanks for having me. And it's an excellent opportunity to be with you and Robin. Well, the essential uh, and most fundamental tenet of Islam, where there is no disagreement among all Muslims of the past and the present, is the concept of Tawheed, which means the absolute monotheism or absolute oneness of God. And by this we mean that God, who's also known in Arabic as Allah, and Allah is unique because it does not refer to gender or plurality. So Allah is the, uh, the creator and the maker and the sustainer of, of the cosmos. Uh, the concept of the absolute oneness of God uh, means that uh, he is self-subsisting, did not beget, nor was he begotten, completely independent, and there is nothing like unto God. And we say he for convenience, not to indicate gender. In the mind of a Muslim a scholar or a layman or a laywoman is that God is God and he cannot be represented in any shape or form. This Tawheed, or the absolute monotheism, is the cornerstone of everything Islamic, whether it's art or architecture, science or philosophy, ethics or medicine. 
So for example, in art and architecture, the concept of Tawheed permeates across. So for instance, all forms of Islamic art and architecture, generally speaking, there are some exceptions, uh, begin with a dot, and then that dot emerges out to indicate oneness and unity. And then there is another principle there in Islamic art and architecture that reflects beauty. And in one of the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad, known as Hadith, he says, Inna Allah jameel and yuhibbul jamal. Allah, God, is beautiful and he loves beauty. And so you find that beauty is manifested in Islamic art and architecture, as an example. Hmm. And then, for example, a third principle of Tawheed is that God cannot be represented in imagery or status or statues. And so you will often find non-iconic non-iconic representation of, of God or anything in Islamic art and architecture. So you can see Tawheed, that absolute oneness of God permeate in Islamic art and architecture. And the same is true for other aspects. But also, so that is the, the cornerstone. Yes. Another important aspect is the belief that God being absolutely merciful, absolutely compassionate, but is also absolutely just. Mm. Then he has sent prophets and messengers to humanity uh, uh, who were simply human beings chosen to deliver a message, the first of which was Adam and the last of which was Muhammad. And Jesus and Moses are also uh, considered as uh, noble, mighty, honorable prophets and messengers of God. This is just the most fundamental aspect of Islamic theology, if you like. And from that, other things emerge, which we can talk about. And what is, what is the concept of submission? Submission comes from the, from the word Islam. So Islam, an Arabic word which could mean submission, but it could also mean surrender. 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 To surrender one's will or submits one's will to the will of God. Essentially, what Islam says is that human beings tempt, are tend, tend to follow their whims and desires and the dictates of society if, if uh, they are given free reins. <laughs> mm-hmm. And often whims and following whims and our whims and our desires without some form of guidance would lead us to destroy our soul, ourselves and everything around us. So surrender here means that if we believe there is God, and we do, and if we believe that he has sent us divine revelations, and we do, then a person must submit to this divine will and surrender himself to obey God and obey his messenger, but not blindly. There is a difference between blind faith Mm. and faith that requires some intellectual endeavor. Mm. And that is why at the core of practice or surrender in Islam is mental capacity or intellect is important. For one who is devoid of intellect or the ability to discern between right and wrong is not responsible in the eyes of God. He or she Mm. are not liable. You need to be able to read the Quran and work out what to do in relation to it. Because, I mean, what does the Quran contain? It's, it's, it's less just about salvation of the soul. And it has, seems, from my understanding, some more links to the Jewish Torah, which has a lot of edicts and laws for how we should actually live our life in practice, what we should do. Correct. So Quran means that which is often recited. Right. So yes. that is the word. So it's recited often. And of course, as you may know, 
it's uh, just like in the Jewish tradition, the Quran is memorized. Uh, the whole Quran is memorized from cover to cover in its original Arabic text. Mm. And millions, literally, of Muslims across the world, be they Arabs or Chinese or Pakistani or Indian Muslim, they must memorize it in the original language. And the reason for that is to prevent adulteration and uh, additions and deletions from the original text. Isn't it also because it, it is the word of God? You know, the Arabic words are the word Absolutely. of God. A translation is an, is an interpretation of the word. Precisely. So any translation of the Quran is considered the translation of the meaning of the original. Yeah. The original remains Arabic. Now, as what the Quran contains, well, interestingly, out of the 6,000 plus verses of the Quran, about 313 are legal in nature. Right. So Muslim scholars say the Quran, about a third of the Quran, and this is not in chronological order, but across the Quran, about a third of the Quran categorically deals with the concept of who God is and who God is not. Hmm. Because it's such an important point if Tawheed is the central tenant of Islam and the cornerstone of all things Islamic, then one needs to know, well, who this God is and who God is not. So there is a third across the Quran. Then a second part of the Quran deals with things to do with ethics and morality. Right. You know, how to conduct yourself as, a, as an individual, as a, as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a member of society, and so on. And also there is that legislative part of the Quran, uh, uh, which, uh, as I said, is only about uh, 350 or so verses of the Quran that are clearly legalistic. Just a final question before we move on. But, but as I understand it, Muhammad is not regarded as the founder of a new religion, but the restorer of, an origin, of the original monotheistic faiths that begin with Abraham and Moses. And th that there's the sense that Judaism and Christianity <clears throat> have gone awry. Particularly Christianity, this belief in the Trinity goes against the core fundamental belief in Islam of one God. Is that how, how would you articulate the core differences between Islam and, and Christianity? Precisely, as you've mentioned. So the, the dividing line, one could say, is on the question of the person of Jesus. And as Robin has well articulated, uh, Jesus in the uh, in the conceptions of the Catholic faith, Islam would argue against that and would say Jesus and Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Lot and Zechariah and Muhammad were uh, merely uh, mighty prophets and messengers of God chosen to deliver a message and invited people to worship God himself and not themselves and that they were noble, as I said. I mean, Jesus is mentioned 25 times in the Quran, more than Muhammad. Right. Uh, but uh, in, by, by way of trying to clarify the, the position of Jesus from an Islamic perspective. Yes, yes, yes. But the final word, the final revelation being through Muhammad in the Quran. I mean, my understanding in both Islam and Christianity, Muhammad and Judaism too, and that's that's my background and so and Lloyd's, although we we'd consider ourselves um, secular, is that there's a dualist approach to the philosophy philosophy of mind question, the question of how our material nature, our bodies and brains, 
relates to our inexperience of the world, which 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 obviously feels to us separate and distinct. And it's in this non-material part of ourselves, our our consciousness, our spirit, which is the immortal part where God resides. Could you talk a little about how Islam sees this non-material part of us, this divine part? What, what actually is the divine spirit that animates us? And then particularly, what happens to it after we die? Yeah, well, thank you very much. First, I think I need to clarify that God does not reside in us. Right. Islam does, okay. does, Islam does not see that mainstream Islam does not see that God resides in us. Okay. There are some sects who are considered deviant sects who feel that God is everywhere ah. and God is therefore in us and within us, etc. Mm. And that is contrary to mainstream Islamic teachings because coming back to the, the issue of Tawheed, absolute monotheism, God hears us and he knows us and he sees us, but he's not within us. There is a difference. Mm. Mm. So, uh, and he's uh, above all beings. And one, when, we, when we mention the word Allah, often Muslims immediately say Subhanallah. Subhanallah means God is transcendent. And this is very important. So the transcendence of God is important. That he is, mm. un, not only is he unlike anything that we can think of and imagine, but God, nothing encompasses God. Not even the heavens encompass God. Now, as to the other part of the question, or the the, the non the non material part of the human being, and that is the the ruh or the soul. Right. It's interesting because during the time of the Prophet, this question was raised, and he was asked, "Tell us about the soul." That's the non material part of us, and mm. he didn't respond. He did not respond immediately until revelation came to him, where uh, the verse says, "Yes, alunaka an ruh." They ask you about the soul. And the response simply was, Qul, say to them, min amri rabbi. The soul is of the command of my Lord. Full stop. Okay. That's the extent of our knowledge of the soul. It is the command of the command of our Lord. Now, this soul, however, is the most significant part of this human being because the physical body is a vehicle that carries this soul. And it's the soul that we, be, we need to be working on. If, if, I, if I may quickly, there's a beautiful couplet that was mentioned by a 14th century poet scholar. He says, I'll, I'll translate the English, I won't say the Arabic. He says, O servant of the physical body, how much you toil, you work hard to serve it. Turn your attention to the soul and perfect its virtues, for you are a human by the soul, not the physical body. Mm. Now, what happens to the soul? Yes, yeah. What's what's the journey? What's the post-death journey? Let's focus on this now. What happens in Islam? What's, what's the promise after life? Well, the physical body deteriorates. The soul never dies. Uh, mm -hmm. The next, we transition into a different world. There is a, a the world of the day, the day of judgment mm -hmm. where we will be all taken to task and we'll be questioned for what we have done. And that which secures a person's uh, salvation is not their ethnicity or gender or color, but is their faith in the absolute oneness of God and their good deeds, full stop. Faith and good deeds. And you need both? They're, 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 neither of them are, are, are sufficient without the other? Absolutely, it's not sufficient because a per what's, the, what's the value of faith if a person does not manifest that in good deeds? So just to give you a quick example from the hadith literature, from the sayings of the Prophet, 
he was told about a person who prays all night and they fast all day and they give charity so much, but they were harsh and cruel to a cat mm. to the point that the cat perished and died. So the prophet said, this person will go to hellfire. Mm. And they were surprised like this, you know, this, this person is praying all night and fasting all day. And on the other hand, he was told a person doesn't pray all night and doesn't fast all day, just does the minimum. They believe, they do good deeds, and they are merciful towards a cat. Hmm. And the prophet said, this person will go to paradise. The point is, if faith does not manifest in our conduct, in the way we are with each other and with with humans and animals and birds, if it doesn't manifest in the form of mercy and compassion and empathy and sympathy, then what is the point? That's a, yeah, that's a beautiful portrait. Robin, staying with the topic of death for a moment, what, what happens within Christianity? What happens to our souls after death? What actually are we after death? Are we, are we the same? I mean, my father died recently, so I've become quite obsessed with this question. Are, are we the same person, but just, you know, with a see-through body or are we a spirit with our memories intact? Uh, are we part of universal consciousness? What within traditional Catholic theology, what what goes on in its most contra, you know concrete sense? And, and I imagine it depends on whether our souls have been saved or, or not. Yes, that's true. I'm sorry to hear about the death of your dad. Thank you. And I think these sorts of questions in that setting become really quite urgent, don't they? Yes. In, in Catholic tradition we would say that all that we know about what happens after death, we know because of Jesus Christ. Right. And it was the witness of the early apostles that they uh, were reunited with the person of Jesus after his death in a way that was both continuous with what he'd been before, that is, in lots of ways they recognised him, Mm. but also discontinuous in that, you know, there are occasions where he's not recognised. For example, Mary's crying at the tomb of of mm. Jesus because the body's not there and she sees someone she thinks is a gardener and when she hears her voice, when she hears uh, his voice calling her name, she realises that it's Jesus. So there's a belief that the person who has died and who's resurrected, which it's believed that only Jesus has been resurrected thus far, there is some kind of continuity with the person before death, but some kind of change. And there's different ways in which this can be talked about. The basic kinds of belief is that when a person dies, uh, their soul survives Mm. uh, and the body is dead and that until the final judgment the soul is without its body and Mm. in the final judgment the soul is reunited with its body to either live with God, which is to be with God forever, or to uh, live without God, which is the condition of hell. How long do you have to wait to the the judgment day? Really good question. So there's two two possibilities that are discussed in Catholic theology. Yeah. One is that final judgment is at the end of time, the end of history. Mm. And so it, it kind of imagines that the soul is still, in a sense, within history after it, the, the body dies and waiting for this final 
judgment at the very is that end. Purgatory, or is it that what? might be? It might be in purgatory. Purgatory is the belief that a person who's fundamentally wants to be with God, but who hasn't sufficiently developed in their loving kindness and goodness, hmm. needs to go through this process of purification after death. Right. Okay, sorry, um, I distracted you there. No, from that, no but... that's okay. They're really important questions. So the, there's the dominant strain uh, would be that final judgment occurs at the very end of history. Right. The other belief that came to be discussed round about in the, in the 60s of the last century is the possibility that since history and time are contained within eternity where there's no time, mm. that in fact the end of history coincides with the end of a person's mortal life. Mm. And at the end of that life, they uh, face God and that in that moment, if they are of good heart, they experience purification just by seeing God and they take on, if you like, the new kind of body, the heavenly body that Paul describes in Corinthians. That's not like the earthly body, but expresses the person in their individuality. But that's the less dominant version you're saying. The dominant, ver the, the mainstream version is you have to wait effectively till the end of time before you're able to be united with God. That's right. And it, and it, and there is still a belief that there is a bodily expression of the human person, but you don't get that bodily expression back until the end of time. Sorry, when you're in a, the sort of state of soul before you've been united with God, is the sense that you're still you with your memories and your, you know, you're sort of you without a body? It's uh, very, def very definitely you. Right. Christianity, I, I think I would be safe in saying like Islam, would believe in the identity of each person. So unlike in some other other traditions where, you know, there's reincarnation and things of that nature used to explain what happens. For Christianity, the person is integral. Right. There's something fundamental and the body expresses who the person is. And at the end of at the end of time, souls are reunited with their bodies. And if they love God, to live with God forever. So the body is a way of expressing the soul, but effectively we are our soul and, and you know, it's a very much a non-materialist-based philosophy. Where, where I'd actually disagree because while there are, like, if you spoke to any Christian in the street, they'd probably think about the soul leaving the body and that was it. But in fact, Christianity has a strong emphasis on the need for the body to express who the person is. So Jesus right. is resurrected body and soul. Hmm. So bodiliness is actually a really fundamental aspect of Christianity and, and the belief that the body is not evil, for example. In, in terms of the necessity of believing in Jesus and believing in, in God, is it similar to Islam where in order to be reunited with God and enter into heaven, you, you need that belief is necessary but not sufficient? Yes. Yes, that's not a bad way of putting it. Um, evidently, if you don't believe in God, then it doesn't make sense to want to be with God forever. But, you know, for Christians, even in a kind of minimalist way, a, a fundamental desire to love God and be loved by God is the beginning of a path towards being with God forever. If, if you don't believe in God, well, Christianity teaches that if you choose not to be with God, 
then that's what will happen. It's actually, it's it's your choice. It's not it's your choice. So for people, according to Christian orthodoxy, in a sense, and I imagine Islamic too, but f- focusing on Christianity, for someone like myself, myself who doesn't, you know, believe in in Jesus, or for people of Islamic or other faiths, what will happen to them after after death? The nice thing about Christianity in its better moments. <laughs> But the Catholic Church teaches that it can never say what the final destiny of any particular person is. So it could never say that someone has gone to hell, for example, because that's something that we don't know. And I think certainly the Catholic Church, as it has emerged out of the 1960s when Vatican II took place, is a lot more open, I think, to the possibility that there are a lot of things that we can't say about the afterlife. All that we can say is that Jesus has shown us that there is a life after death. It's a different kind of life. It's a life that's being with God. And otherwise, we don't know. But in an orthodox sense, I mean, isn't that a key motivation of Christianity to want to convert people because you're actually saving souls? Like if you felt that in order to ascend to heaven and be with God, you need to take Jesus into your heart and to believe in Jesus, then there is a huge moral imperative to 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 want to bring people into the fold. I think that's very typically been an attitude of the past right. in Christianity. It's been a strong motivation yeah. to convert people. I kind of just want to differentiate between, you know, a desire to convert people because of your your anxiety that, you know, God, that they won't have God. Yeah. And your and and the respect that we need to have for other people, sure. And the sure. fact that God God is bigger than our conceptions of what God can do. Yeah. So we yeah. just just need to be a bit careful about wanting to go around converting people. It it does for both religions. It does seem it's very binary, isn't it? You know, you're either with God or you're without God. You know, you 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 do good things. You believe in God, but you've horrible to a cat, and then bang, you're like in the worst place ever. You know that. Is there any sense in Christianity of like a sort of quite nice place, but not as good as being with God, but not as bad as hell? Well, I, I don't. The Christianity doesn't sort of talk about a kind of halfway house, but I think it's probably, and and I know this is probably not a very sort of satisfactory answer as far as you're concerned. I don't think Catholicism is as binary as some of its adherents are. Right. So there will be people perhaps listening to this podcast who will think, oh, she's being a bit weak on saying people are going to hell. I think actually the Catholic Church often allows for not being able to be quite so dogmatic. Not knowing. Well, allowing for God's knowledge of people and the fact that humans don't always see what's going on. So, for example... One way of thinking about the church is saying, well, only the people who explicitly accept all of these teachings and who go to church every Sunday and take communion and go to reconcile. You know, there's one very strict and strong form of dogmatism about Catholicism. Mm. There's a, there's another way of thinking about the church that says, actually, there are probably people who aren't formally in the church like that, but God knows their hearts and they are possibly being more Christian and more Catholic than some of the people who are 
trying on all of the, the right behaviour. So we just have to be careful that we don't assume that we know where the boundaries of God's love are. What I love about Catholicism in particular, which which seems to go against, well, as, as Muhammad's explained, it does go against the tenets of, of Islam and Judaism, as I understand it as well, is that God isn't separate from us mortals. God sent Jesus, who's at once human and divine. There's the Holy Spirit that makes up the Trinity. There are these concepts like grace and transubstantiation, where ordinary things like bread and wine can be imbued with God-like sacred qualities. You've explained the, the sort of Trinity, but how... How do God's realm and the human realm meet within Catholicism? Another great question. Catholicism has something we call the sacramental imagination. Hmm. And that is the capacity to see creation itself as opening onto God's revelation to us, as God's engagement with us through, through symbol. So hmm. I suspect like Islam... Catholicism would say it's impossible for human beings to meet God face to face and and live, certainly before death, but that our engagement with God is symbolic. It's through sacramentals of the world, beauty, truth, the love of others, and in particular in Catholicism it's through Eucharist, which when I say it's understood as a symbol, it doesn't mean it's not real. Mm. It means it opens on to more than we can say or think but it's it's actually god's bodily expression amongst us so you're right is it a symbol though or is it actually a meeting of god in in the material world i would say that both of those things are true right we understand it as a symbol because symbols express more than we can say right symbols express the reality of god's presence but we shouldn't think about that in too um, literalistic right. a way. Otherwise, we start having idols. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Muhammad, I'm interested in the concept of, of predestination in Islam, which, which from what I can tell is not too different from the concept in Christianity. You know, because God is omniscient, omnipotent, God knows and has control over everything that will happen, that our lives are in a sense preordained by the Almighty. How does that square with the concept of free will, which Islam and Christianity both preserve? In what sense are we free? And in what sense are our lives part of God's preordained plan? And, and in what sense can we truly sin if our lives are, in a sense, preordained? Excellent. Thank you for that. So predestination, the word for it in Arabic is qadr. And often a translation to English gives a misinterpretation of the actual meaning. Hmm. Yes, we do believe in qadr or, or the fact that uh, Allah is fully aware of what we do and the choices that we will make, but it doesn't mean he has imposed those choices on us because that would go against the very idea of free will. So, uh, yes, we have free will, and that's what distinguishes us hmm. from, say, animals. Hmm. And based on that free will, that free will also requires intellect, the ability to exercise that free will uh, without, say, coercion or without being forced into making a choice or a decision outside of our free will. And mental capacity is also important in this sense. 
So God has given us the free will and the choice, the, the ability and the faculties such as intellect to be able to choose, but he's fully aware of our choices. Being aware of our choices does not mean he has imposed those choices on us, but he is uh, all-knowing, all-seeing. There is a difference between imposing his will and choices on us, which then contradicts the very idea of free will, and being fully aware because he is God oh, okay. of the choices that we will make. So the predestination is, he's a, in a sense aware of the choices that we will make of our free will. Precisely. Precisely. Well, otherwise, how can he be God if he doesn't know? Yeah. So then, and, and I often give a very nice example, if you allow me. It's a very story that happened during the, the time of the second caliph of Islam, whose name was Omar. And Umar ibn al-Khattab was sending an army at the time to Damascus. Now, before the army was sent forth, the news came that plague had broken out in Damascus. So he stopped the army from going. One of the other senior companions or senior commanders said to Umar, are you frightened from the, dest the qadr, the, the destiny of God? If it is meant to be, it will happen. Mm. So send the army forth. If they are meant to die, they will die. <laughs> if that's mm. what destiny is. Mm. So Omar looked at him and he says, oh, the, man was, the man's name was Abu Ubaidah. He says, oh, Abu Ubaidah, if you have a flock of sheep or a herd of camels and you are taking them to graze and eat and drink and you came to two valleys, one valley was arid and dry and no vegetations and no water, but the other one had vegetations and had water. Where will you take them? Mm. Where will you take your flock? He says, I'll take my flock to, to where there is vegetation. He said, then you escape the, the, the predestiny of God to the, to the predestiny of God. Mm. So mm. making Beautiful. that choice, yes. So, and that is important point because often people fail to understand this idea of predestination. So fatalism is not predestiny. To be fatalistic is not to believe in qadr, not to believe in the fact that God knows of our choices, but we have the choice to make, to choose between right and wrong. Otherwise, what's the point, as you have said? Yes, it's not a determinism, really, in a, in a strict sense yeah. either. Robin, original sin is a tough idea to swallow if you're not Christian. I might cheekily say that it's a, it's a brilliant marketing hook to say that we're born in a state of sin based on nothing we ourselves have done, and that we therefore need to believe in Christianity and Jesus to save us. It, it sort of diagnoses us with an illness we don't know we have and then says that only it can cure us. How do we square this with our more secular ideas of sin, even the more Judaic notions and maybe Islamic too, that, that sin happens when we as rational adults choose of our own free will to breach moral law? And, and in addition to original sin, the whole Catholic notion of, of penance for the sins we commit in, in our life and the the, the way we're able to repent and thereby restore salvation also seems at odds with our, our justice system, where it's not it's not just good enough to repent, where one actually needs to be punished for hurting others in a retributive sense, where the punishment fits the crime. So, so really the two questions here, how to square original sin as well as the practice of penance for sins that we commit in our lives, which, which are based on this Christian aim of salvation of the soul with what I'd call our human common sense notion of, of sin as, as moral tr transgression and the need for repentance and punishment that most of us hold in society. And you want this interview to finish in half an hour? <laughs> in um, two minutes. <laughs> yeah, in two minutes. Okay. 
Look, this is this podcast is the chance for me to ask every um, complex question that's been on my mind. It's actually one of my favourite things to think about. Original sin is frequently misunderstood, and the misunderstanding comes from the way in which Saint Augustine talked about original sin. Um, what sixteen hundred odd years ago, the way that we think about original sin isn't. It's not like a, an STD. It's not a sexually transmitted disease. Mm. Original sin is any state in which the human person doesn't know God. Mm. And in a sense, Catholics think about turning turning to God who is always ready for people to turn as knowing God's grace. Mm. In knowing God's grace, we are able to act freely and with love. Whereas in a state where we don't know God's grace and we're ignorant of that, we don't yet know how to love with great freedom. Mm. So that sin for Christians can be active sin, right? Mm. You do something wrong. It can be a sin of omission where you should have acted and you, you didn't. Or it can have this more sort of social character. And I'll give you an example, a contemporary example. We talk sometimes about social sin as a type of original sin. A number of years ago, I remember listening to a news bulletin where it was said that the Howard government was going to ban a particular sort of pesticide for use in Australia mm. because it was going to because it was making people sick. At the same time, it was going to sell the stocks that we currently had to India. Mm. Now, when we think about social sin, that very participation in perpetuating ill of somebody else while we're, you know, doing something that's going to be good for Australian people, we all participate in those actions to the extent that we all vote and we all stand up or don't stand up for what's right. It's a kind of a sin that we don't actively commit ourselves, but we we go along with it because we we want to keep our social order the way that we have it nicely in Australia. Or again, I could give you the example of the ways in which we've engaged with Indigenous peoples and that whole question of can you apologise to, to Indigenous people if you haven't actually done, you know, the stealing of the stolen generations? Mm, mm. Some people would say no because I didn't do that. But from a Catholic perspective, from a perspective of social sin, you'd say, well, I'm living off the benefits of the forebears who actually stole land and children. And therefore I participate in this sin in in a social way and I'm responsible. So it's a sort of collectivizing of, of sin in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense where sin isn't seen to just lie within an individual's actions. It's it's but there is, I mean, there's uh, baptism and there are all these practices in which one is trying to expunge the stain of, 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 of the original sin of, of, of Adam, aren't we? I mean, that's the origin yeah. of it. And, and, and baptism, I mean, you know, there's a tendency for people popularly to think of baptism as kind of a magic rite, you know? Right. And baptism, in fact, is the bringing of a person into the community of the church, into com the community of the people who themselves communicate the grace of God. Hmm. If you're baptised and then you don't participate in that community and share that, that grace, then 
it's it's not fundamentally going to reorient your life in the way that baptism is designed to do. Mm. That being said, the thing that I really like about Christianity is there's always space for redemption. I think the fundamental thing about Christianity is God is always there, able to grace your life if you just if you will turn to God. But getting to know God depends on your relationships. Muhammad, the Quran, as I understand it, is literally the word of God channeled through through Muhammad. You know, in fact, it's as you said, it's specifically the word of God in Arabic, or any translations and active interpretation. At the same time, God's word was revealed to Muhammad at a very particular time and place in history in the early 600s in the Arabian Peninsula. How can words revealed at a very particular moment in history stay true for all time? And how is Islam able to adapt to changing cultural moral norms while still holding on to the essential belief in the Quran as God's words? And I'm thinking here about you know, a whole range of things, including the ability for men to have multiple wives, the feminist challenge to the veil, as, as well as perdas, secluding women away from men and strangers. So how does that, that tension work between the truth of the word in a time and place and, and the challenges of time? Yeah, that's an excellent question. The general misunderstanding amongst uh, Orientalists generally and Westerners is that Islam is fixed in time and place and is not uh, open for examination and re-examination or aspects of Islam. And that uh, what was uh, applicable in the 7th century uh, remains applicable in the 21st century or so forth. Now, this is true regarding some uh, explicit uh, 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 teachings, such as the concept of the oneness of God, explicit and universal teachings. So, for example, the, the fundamental teaching of Islam and the oneness of God is, cannot change. Hmm. How could it change? Whether in the 7th century or in the whichever century, it is a tenet of faith that no one has the right to alter. No one has the right to change or the concept of believing that Muhammad was a human being. Uh, and we can't change that. So, so there are uh, universal yet very explicit and unequivocal teachings about Islam that cannot change with time and place, such as, for example, uh, do not steal. Stealing is, is considered a sin. Adultery is considered a sin. Fornication is considered a sin, for instance. And that is not going to change with time and place. And no Muslim has the right to change that. And this often, uh, this falls in the domain of strictly what is known as Sharia. Sharia often translated as Islamic law, which is a problem. I think Sharia, law is part of Sharia, but Sharia is not all about law. Sharia is a, is a pathway and it includes morals, ethics. There is another domain within Islamic law called fiqh or jurisprudence. And jurisprudence is subject to examination and re-examination, interpretation and reinterpretation, and it is flexible. And the, 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 the agreement among scholars is that the text must go with the context. And so you can't interpret the text without the context. Does so this sit within the Quran? Sorry, Muhammad, uh, this jurisprudence? Yes, it's extracted from, but it's human endeavor to understand the Quran based on a certain methodology that takes into account context. So, for example, part of context, which is really important, is people, cultural cultures and customs, customs mm. and practices. 
known as urf in jurisprudence, Islamic jurisprudence. And in fact, a legal maxim in Islam says, al-'ada muhakkama, cultural usage is authoritative, or cultural usage must be taken into account before coming up with a, a particular law. So, for, to get to, for example, the Quran speaks about dowry or a marriage gift that a, a man must give to his wife for the marriage contract to be valid. But it does not tell us the quantity or the type. The principle is that a marriage gift should be given, but the the amount and the type is left to, number one, the capacity of the person himself, financial capacity, but secondly, the cultural taste of the people. So it does not impose. Regarding the hijab, for instance, the, the, the covering, what Islam demands is modesty, and modesty, according to mainstream Muslim scholars, is that it's the covering of, of the body from head to toe, excluding the face and the hands. Mm. Mm. But then it does not stipulate a particular style or color. Mm. And so if in Saudi they decide to choose black and cover the face, that is not the stipulation of Islam per se. That is mm. the stipulation of cultural taste. And what Islam says, well, we're not going to go against your cultural taste because human beings have their own cultural tastes and styles. Mm. But if you go to Southeast Asia, for instance, you find they have a different way of representing that modesty. It's still covering, it's still concealing, but the colors might change or the style might change. And that's fine. I, I really ask the same of you, Robin. The New Testament is Holy Scripture and therefore, according to orthodoxy, it's it's the word of God, even though it's been written by a number of people after the time of Jesus. What's your roadmap to make Christianity as relevant uh, to people today as possible while still retaining um, essential beliefs? I really like what Muhammad just said about text and context. Right. Because um, we live in history. Christians regard the New Testament with a great deal of reverence because it's the closest uh, recording that we have of uh, texts that include some of what Jesus said and and talk about some of the things that Jesus did and the relationships that he had. Uh, but we have to take its own context into account. Hmm. Um, and the fact that uh, for Catholics in particular, tradition, which is the way that the revelation of God in Jesus Christ moves through time, needs to be re-expressed in every generation. If we don't take the context into account, we've actually reified that scriptural document. Catholics believe that God speaks in and through scripture, but we don't, that's not a literalist interpretation. A literalist says, well, this says, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I haven't met actually many people who will do that. Uh, but there are often people who will argue that you have to take scripture literally. Well, in fact, you, ju you, you do need to look at what would have happened at the time, but you also need to have to think about how our thinking has changed over time and in different cultures and contexts. Mm. So you can't have mm. you can't have text without context for, mm. for Christianity. Mm. Mm. Well, just a final question to you both: both Islam and Christianity seek to convert non-believers. There's this notion, as I understand, of dawah in Islam, an invitation to join the religion. And from what I've learned today from both of you, we, we know the religions do have different beliefs in what the word of God is. 
and the, the Quran and New Testament contain different edicts and revelations. So, so within an orthodox lens, they literally both can't be true because there are differences. So with that in mind, Muhammad, how would you, would you sell Islam to a, a non-believer who is interested? What, 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 what is the essential promise of the religion and why would someone convert to Islam and not to Christianity? It's a cheeky question, but I'm, I'm hopeful yeah. you'll go with me on this. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, da'wah is invitation, and invitation has to be done in the most beautiful of ways. And so essentially the first thing I would invite a person to is to believe in the oneness of God. I think mm. the distinguishing mark of Islam is the clarity about who God is, the absolute oneness of God, that the God is unlike anything that we know. He was not born, nor did he give birth to anything. He's self-subsisting all independent and i'll share to the person you know just open your eyes and look around you look at this cosmos it could not have come without a higher intelligence being intelligent being and this mm. being must be completely unlike any of us um, uh, human beings who are full of shortcomings and weaknesses and god cannot be like us full stop mm. thank you thank you and Robin, too, so putting aside a sort of reform lens and focusing on the theological claims of Christianity, which, which cross over but are incompatible at times with Islam, what's the essential promise of Christianity to someone who is interested in, in, in joining the religion? What can Christianity offer that um, Islam uh, couldn't? Well, I try to put it not in a propositional way because I think Christianity is at its best when Christians are loving one another and and you might know the text by their fruits you shall know them by looking at the way that that Christians at their best love one another that is essentially the thing that will um, draw or attract someone to the experience of God through knowing that person hmm. so it, it's invitational I would say that we're at a point now when it's pretty fruitless to kind of pit religious traditions against one another in, in terms of truth and falsity. People have different ways and those ways have a lot to do with the context in which they found themselves. And I don't think it's as easy as putting one against the other. Mm. But one lives in one's own tradition and one is drawn to um, one is drawn to a tradition and I would say drawn by God to a tradition through what one one sees as attractive and life-giving in the tradition. Hmm. Thank you. That was part one of our conversation, and we will be back next week with part two, when Lloyd puts the guests on the couch to ask some unfiltered questions. See you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 